Welcome to an attempt at civil discourse. My name is Eden Cohen, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Salisbury. In this series of podcasts, we take on difficult and profound topics that apply to us as individuals and societies. We have different takes on many of these subjects, but our goal is to conduct a thoughtful and open-minded discussion to inspire better knowledge and better dialogue. In today's episode, we will examine privacy and surveillance in the digital age and the fine line that courses between them. Ever since the early days of encryption, governments have looked for ways to break it. At first, these efforts were targeted at other governments only because they are the only ones that possess the tools to encrypt their communications. However, we're now living in a world where military-grade encryption is widely available and implemented everywhere. WhatsApp, Zoom, and the VPN service that you might be using all use encryption that's unbreakable for today's supercomputers. Even the NSA has to defer to roundabout ways in order to get hold of unencrypted user data. This kind of pain that governments have to endure is a blessing, of course, for those who value privacy, but it also leads intelligence agencies to resort to mass global surveillance. Without good access to your suspects of choice, everyone can become a suspect. And at the same time, there may be justification for law enforcement and intelligence agencies to get access to certain data. like evidence needed for investigating criminal activities or national security threats. This is not only a major dilemma, but it's also a worthwhile topic for a podcast on civil discourse. Andrew, are you ready for the face-off? I think it's ripe for civil discourse, and it's not only a very current topic, but this is one that goes back through history. People have been encoding and hiding information from, For as long as they've been communicating with each other. And so it's an ongoing battle between clarity and uh, good communications and then hiding the important parts of your communication. Absolutely. You know, in fact, I think when I studied the topic of encryption and cryptography, we started with something called the Julius Cipher. And that goes all the way back to something that Julius Caesar himself used back in ancient Rome. Yeah, and of course, if you could break someone's encryption and they didn't know it, you just had a fine old time reading all of their secret stuff. Lots and lots of effort went into getting into that position. And then, of course, if you knew they were breaking your encryption, then you could put stuff in there that wasn't true. So that spy Absolutely. and counter-spy thing has been going The on. The story of Bletchley Park, right? Exactly. 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 So I think just before we hit record, uh, you shared with me a very interesting story of a recent sting operation, and I, I thought it made a lot of sense for us to open with that. So take it like away, a, Andrew. I like a good story. Um, this goes back to 2018, and the FBI actually creates an encrypted communications company that makes a fancy phone, markets it to... criminal underworld basically throughout the world uh, charges a great deal of money for the phone and then the whole thing is just riddled with spyware and these infected phones went all over the world Australia New Zealand Europe and was then resulting in some 300 different organized criminal groups 
being arrested, prosecuted based on the information that they were passing through the phone. Now, interestingly enough, despite it, the FBI creating this, they didn't go after people in the United States because the laws prevent them from going after U.S. citizens. So it's very complicated and tangled weave, but I love the idea that you paid for this very expensive phone just so the FBI could spy on you. And the very fact that you bought an <laughs> encrypted phone meant you were just the kind of person we'd like to spy on. Now, what is interesting is that lots of people are paying a monthly bill so they can carry around a supercomputer in their pocket, which is actively tracking and reporting on their every activity, their every communications, their GPS location, and we're paying the bill for it. So we have a competing interest here where I want privacy, but I'm willing to give it up to have convenience. So it's not just encryption. There's a whole question about security and where all this fits together. So how does that sound? My big question, what's the balance between safety and security and who can be trusted? Oh, this is a tough one. But I believe there probably is a workable balance and maybe similar to the tech that makes private communications and surveillance an option. Uh, this too is an ever uh, evolving target. So let's take a, a principles based look at this one. There are some principles that we in liberal democracies have to uphold and respect. So think of them as being our red lines. The first one is that individual citizens must be allowed to use any encryption that they want in their private communications. And products have to be able to offer any encryption without any limitations, without any interventions that, that are imposed by governments. Um, so to put it another way, individuals are allowed to keep governments away from their private communications. That, that has to be the case. And while this is largely the situation in the U.S. and EU, this is not the case in China or in Russia, where encryption for civilian communications is usually little more than uh, window dressing. So that's one. Another principle, in my view, is that governments and law enforcement shouldn't be hacking people or platforms like Gmail, say, without due process and without reasonable suspicion. What uh, Snowden, the, the NSA contractor, um, leaked to the press back in 2013, showed that uh, the U.S. government was breaking into every major tech platform imaginable, and they were doing this to collect massive stockpiles of data on all users. They used benign code names like Oakstar or uh, Fairview, um, and what they were doing is tapping undersea fiber optic cables, which are the backbone of the internet. And this wasn't easy to come by. So back in 20, 2005, I think, the U.S. Navy sent a nuclear uh, submarine for this job. Uh, and then together with the GCHQ, the British intelligence agency, they soaked up millions of gigabytes of data every day indiscriminately 
this is the nightmare scenario of any privacy advocate. And this went on for years. Maybe it still is. And I find it to be unacceptable and really in stark breach of the social contract between citizens and government. But I'm not Manichaean, and I'm going to stop short of saying that law enforcement should never try to eavesdrop on personal communications. There are uh, certainly cases where this can save lives or help put vicious criminals behind lock and bar. So if there is probable cause, if this sort of surveillance is highly targeted, then I do think law enforcement should be given a legal mechanism at least to try and get that data. And so hopefully this gives you a basic idea of my perspective here. It's really about establishing these bright line rules about what governments are allowed to do and at the same time give everyone access to technology that lets them maintain uh, their own privacy. And there is inefficiency in this. I realize that for one thing, it creates this black market for offensive cyber tools that governments can then license and use that to hack into suspected people and personal devices. But I still, I still consider this as the least worst option and maybe a decent balance overall. So one of the points that would be made here is why would you use encryption if you weren't a criminal? So the whole idea is I'm hiding my information from the government, from somebody. Why would I do that if I'm not violating the law? And you hear this all the time, right? You, you know, if you weren't a bad guy, you wouldn't want to hide your information. You would be all up in the... Well, Andrew, are you suggesting that people cannot have secrets which are not in violation of the law? What if I have a secret to share with you that we don't want uh, our friend Joe to know about? Wouldn't we want to encrypt our communication so Joe doesn't find out about it? And everything we're doing is legal. We're not harming Joe in any way, but maybe we don't want to hurt his feelings. So we want to keep it encrypted. I mean, there's so many reasons why you want to be encrypted, regardless of government. Competitive information, intelligence, business information. Good. That's why it's a civil discourse, because I'm asking the question, you're answering it, but I can still say where where the government would be like, hmm, there goes some encrypted traffic. Maybe we should look in there. Maybe there's some criminal activity inside there. Probable cause is what the police officer would say as your car went by and he decided to pull it over. You looked suspicious. Well, if your windows are all blacked out, you look suspicious. So if your communications are all blacked out, that looks pretty suspicious. And I have to say, you you go back and look at what they're doing with metadata, right? They're not reading the contents of the message. They're looking at who you're communicating with and what your patterns of communications are and deciding that is suspicious behavior. I I think you tackle a few different things here, and they're all important. Uh, Number one, should you be perceived as doing something illicit? only because you chose to use encryption. And I think going back to my first principle, that shouldn't be the case. So in countries that operate through rule of law and believe in individual freedoms, it should be outside the purview of law enforcement to just randomly pick up on uh, potential subjects of surveillance based on whether or not they, they use some kind of encryption. I think that should simply be illegal. That should not be probable cause. 
But the second thing that you bring up is that whole idea of patterns or metadata, to, to use the more technical term for that. And this is a tricky one because on one hand, you can glean incredible insights about what is going on only through metadata. Um, so just to clarify to our audience, when we talk about metadata, if you think of a messaging application, for example, where you exchange messages with another person, the messages might be encrypted, so nobody can eavesdrop on the messages, but there is still metadata, and that includes things such as the identities of the people that you interact with, how often you interact with them, and even how much data you're sharing with them. So it may not expose a personal message where you admit to a crime, but it can absolutely implicate you in being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it's incredibly revealing. Now, depending on the scenario, this may allow an eavesdropper to get very close to the private information that they're going after, and therefore analyzing patterns can certainly be a form of privacy invasion, but it isn't always so. Sometimes metadata can provide valuable insights, but only on an aggregate level, very useful for understanding trends or getting statistical insights, but without divulging any information about specific people. So considering this, Andrew, should metadata also remain outside the bounds of what law enforcement should have access to? Or is it just fair and legitimate territory for law enforcement and intelligence agencies to dwell in? It's, a, it's tough. It's tough. And by the way, I'm not at all a fan of the government collecting every single thing they can get and then pawing through it, looking for patterns that we can then use to go get people. It's very clear to me that the use of that becomes incredibly problematic. I don't trust them. I don't trust the government to keep their hands off things they shouldn't have their hands on. So. I'm not actually saying that the use of encryption should be regarded as a criminal activity, but we're edging up on that. And I would say when you're collecting metadata, the fact that it's encrypted or that you put effort into going to an encrypted channel is probably being added right into the list of variables that are fed into those machine learning algorithms. So the fact that you've said, I need to encrypt this, tells them, hey, there might be something good there. Are they going to come and get you just for using Signal? No. Would they in Russia? Yes. They would definitely open a file on you because you're the kind of person who's, you know, using this tool to hide from them. After 9-11, we went nuts with the Patriot Act. And there was a great deal of talk five years later on, so that would be, say, 2006, 2007, when they were using the Patriot Act on everything they could. So they literally now had a hammer and they were just hitting everything that, oh, that's terrorist. That might be a terrorist over there. Kind of like how TSA was, you know, starting to search everybody who looked vaguely Middle Eastern and hassle them because they might be a terrorist. We were using the Patriot Act well out of bounds. And there was a talk about putting in uh, circuit breakers, basically, so that the next time we get attacked or the next time there's an incident, we don't run off 
the deep end again. That, of course, never occurred. But I actually think that that's what we really need is some some way to inject some deliberate consideration of what you're going to do, especially when it involves giving up our hard-won civil rights, that you want to be protected, but you've got to protect the rights, not just the body of the citizens. Otherwise, we're not the United States anymore. Yes, it's uh, one of the unfortunate consequences of the Patriot Act and the whole mindset that prevailed post 9/11 that intelligence agencies are legitimized to carry out these truly unthinkable operations such as hacking every tech platform and collecting and analyzing all that data. Uh, they were acting like a fishing trawler. That's simply there to sweep every living organism out of this ocean called the Internet. Uh, this is truly dystopian. Well, I agree. Um, I'll also point out we invaded two countries incorrectly you know, to be proven by Afghanistan and Iraq. And exactly the same thing happened at Pearl Harbor, that we gave up even a consideration of Japanese-American citizens, some of whom were third-generation Americans, they lost all of their civil rights, they lost all of their property, and for the most part, many of them lost their freedom and or their lives because we got attacked. We turned on ourselves very nicely. And I suspect that if you went back and asked Osama bin Laden, how do you think 9-11 went for you? He couldn't have asked for a better result in terms of the destruction and the damage that he did to the United States, the World Trade Center's collapsing and the 3,000 people was a little pinprick. But the things we did to ourselves and to our image in the world and our standing in the world were huge. Not all having to do with security and encryption, but Internally, we did ourselves a lot of damage just this way. And they we eroded on... the trust that we had in our own government. And I do think in that case, encryption was part of that. Yeah. I, um, I still think there is a call for law enforcement to be able to access and to look at these patterns and to try to prevent crimes. I think that's a useful function. What seems to be lacking and often fails is the mechanisms by which you have to get authorization to do that. So the FISA courts and the FISA warrants, I looked this up, less than one half of 1% of FISA warrants were refused. And almost every one of them was kicked back for a paperwork problem. Yeah. FISA Not is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Exactly. But that was part of the Patriots Act that, that was supposed to be the, the protection mechanism. You had to go to the court and say, we want this information. And they ended up just approving every single thing that came down the, down the pike, many of which didn't yield actionable results, some of which did. And like I said, you know, we could say, hey, we haven't been attacked again. And that's our justification for everything for the last 20 years. But we've also, as you said, eroded the trust, eroded the, the faith in it. So I think there needs to be a way to oversee it that's a lot more effective than what's going on.
One of the uh, consequences of the post-9-11 panic, and this usually leads to those sorts of problems that you speak of, like all the FISA approvals, is that the, the U.S. defense establishment was given monumental budgets to solve the threat of terrorism. And when you receive so much budget overnight and you go out on a hiring spree, that typically results in some kind of inundation. So in this case, they had a lot of resources, and what they ended up doing with it is trying to conduct as many investigations and as many surveillance operations as they could, the obvious result being a low signal-to-noise ratio. So FISA courts are flooded with requests, and that's followed by an avalanche of phantom investigations that often led nowhere because there was nothing behind them, except maybe for some uh, hardworking immigrant from Pakistan whose name happened to be Osama. So that's the level of, of noise that you had in the system looking for the next attack. And I think we should have been a lot smarter in how quickly we ramped up those operations You really can't build successful organizations or successful operations by simply quadrupling the number of people. Um, But it's important to mention that the tide seems to be turning. Certain tech companies uh, like Apple, like Microsoft, have refused to let the U.S. government and various agencies simply spy on their customers. And they brought several such incidents to the public square, even to the Supreme Court. And this has an effect. Uh, The U.S. government and Congress have promoted new mechanisms for uh, legal data access. One of them is the Cloud Act of 2018. There are also several bilateral data access agreements with certain uh, friendly foreign governments. So I think there is a different way. And maybe two decades later, it's uh, starting to play out. I don't know that they can monitor 100% of the internet traffic, but I know they want to. And there's a huge amount of, you know, compute and storage capability being dedicated to that effort today. So if they're not doing it now, they will be, and they may be listening to what we're saying right now because it's not encrypted. So I hope they do. We love our listeners and we don't discriminate (laughs) (laughs) based on workplace. Subscribe. NSA subscribes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great thing to throw in there. So, Andrew, we talked about governments, and clearly there is distrust in the U.S. government. But if we zoom out, do you think that governments and, of course, the individuals that operate within them, can they be trusted? Or is this something that you simply never can put your faith in? I think you need both a government you can trust and a mechanism by which you can enforce that trust. So blindly trusting the government uh, is not possible, hasn't proven to be a very good plan in general. And much of the 50s and 60s were spent discovering that, that you really couldn't uh, trust the government. The biggest problem I have is that there are human beings who actually make up the government and they will do things for their own good well outside the scope of what they should be doing. Yeah, I agree. I would uh, borrow, I guess, the Russian proverb of trust but verify. Trust but verify, exactly. Yeah, I want to see oversight of every agency because none of them can or should be allowed to operate above the law. And 
we shouldn't, of course, monitor every move of every intelligence analyst and say that needs to be verified and monitored because you will end up with a Stalinistic system, which is no good either. But the public good is not one-dimensional, and governments have to, at the end of the day, balance uh, multiple values. And you can never say, our top priority right now is preventing terrorism, and therefore we are free to operate as long as we uh, uphold that objective. Hey, we can't be investigating people and not filing reports on them, and therefore we'd better get them to do something that's worth you know, filing a report. I have a personal story where a friend of mine was married to a mid-level bureaucrat in one of the three-letter agencies, and during their divorce, he turned the mechanism of the federal government on her. Now, fortunately, she was an officer in the military and was able to be protected, but he did all kinds of dirty tricks and was tapping her phone, tapping all of her communications and monitoring her illegally, but he had the position and all he had to do was check a box and all of a sudden he's listening to everything she's doing. And then, you know, was also messing with her. She'd show up and all of her airplane flights had been canceled and she was put on the watch list for a while so that she, an officer in the military, couldn't go through, you know, TSA. It, it was a huge hassle. And, you know, her big crime was she didn't want to be married to him anymore. Well, Andrew, I hope that answers your previous question about why should law-abiding citizens want encryption? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Although it's not clear to me that the encryption would have helped in this case. It needs to be said that having access to encryption is by no means a guarantee that law enforcement cannot get in. Encryption can be very safe, but the phones that run these encryption algorithms are much less secure than the encryption itself. And if the phone is broken into, then really all bets are off. And that is often what ends up happening. This is why the NSA was so successful with the operations that Snowden disclosed, because they never broke the encryption, but they didn't have to break the encryption. They, they broke to. systems. And those systems, once you're inside, you have access to the secrets. And that will remain technologically the most difficult thing to fix if it ever gets fixed. Because what people, what companies prioritize is not necessarily releasing secure products, but it's releasing products that make money. And yep. there's a vast difference between those two things. Well, and we can go into the technology of how the encryption works and all that. But you're right. If you're down at the hardware level, pre-encryption, it doesn't matter how well encrypted it is. You can intercept that message you know, from the keyboard as it's typed in, you're not worried about the encryption. You're getting every single thing that's, you know, a keystroke. That is correct. So I want to come to another point. Fast forward to today and even the future. So Apple was planning to launch a feature where they would scan your camera photos and look for evidence of child abuse and pornography. There was this public outcry, of course, um, about this potentially weakening user privacy. So I want to ask you, provided that big tech is not going to give governments backdoor access to your data, and Apple has been very staunch about this point, that it doesn't collude with the U.S. government or other governments, 
at least in democratic countries. Isn't it only fair that technology platforms like the iPhone will take this responsibility upon themselves to detect and curb things such as child pornography? So let's, let's make a couple of points here that I think got lost in this uh, debate around this question. They only were going to look at images that were about to be uploaded to the cloud. They weren't going to go on your phone and scan all your photos just for the fun of it. They were very concerned that you were doing a bad thing. And then that bad thing ended up on their server. Although, and to be fair, the, the photos are almost always automatically uploaded to the cloud. So right. for all intents and purposes, you can say, you take a photo, it gets scanned. Yes, but my point was that they weren't, they weren't going in and saying, we're going to go and look at all of your images. They were saying, we want to protect our, ourselves and children, perhaps, but ourselves from storing child pornography on our servers. You know, there's a whole bunch of discussion about whether or not they are criminally liable for that. But that's what they were trying to do in their statement. And they picked child porn because that is the thing that makes everybody just crazy. As soon as you say that, it seems to justify any amount of... Yeah, even QAnon are on board with that one. Yeah, well, right. QAnon, in fact, uses child porn and child trafficking to help recruit people uh, into to QAnon. And they were also only searching for, I believe, some 50,000 known images that that's what they were using to, to look for. So they were not going through and looking at your images and trying to decide if it's child porn or not. They were matching against a known set, apparently a widely spread um, oh, so th- this is a very interesting distinction. So you're saying they weren't looking for child pornography of any sort. They just had their blacklist of known pornography photos. So this is where it all started to get in a hubaloo because obviously all of a sudden the police are at your door and it turns out you took a picture of your child in the bathtub playing with you know a bar of uh, soap or a rubber ducky and they decided, oh, that's child porn. That would have been a real problem. So my understanding is they were not reporting it to authorities. They were just trying to keep these things off their servers. Now, once you've started doing this, can you see the police asking them, hey, could you also look for this image or could you also look for this set of images? And now you start to have real problems. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad they stopped. I'm glad that they brought this up to be discussed because it's clearly going to happen. Um, I certainly don't think that we need to have machine intelligence looking at our photos and trying to decide that they're illegal in some fashion. So it, it, it's a sticky wicket, as we say. It is. It is. I have to say this, though. I find it preferable that a commercial enterprise would perform this kind of scan if the alternative is that a government agency pours over my phone or cloud storage, because at least with Apple, uh, consumers get to decide if they want to use the product, um, provided that Apple is transparent about what the, what the product does. Um, the public can then make a choice whether they want to go with the iPhone or not, whereas with three-letter agencies, they carried out their massive scanning campaigns 
with complete opacity and left people no other choice except to be part of that. And this is how I see it with respect to any tech platform. I want the power in the hands of tech platforms as long as people have the choice, right? Um, so that's the big if. Um, this is assuming that consumers can really switch over to an alternative product. Um, obviously, that's not always the case. Um, but most digital products have decent enough alternatives. Maybe social media is the uh, glaring exception to this. So the social media companies, as well as Google and Apple, have an incredible insight into things, forget whether it's encrypted or not, right? That goes way into the metadata and the big data sort of questions. Let's go back to encryption and security for a second. And this is really, you know, the heart of the matter. Is there a technological solution to this problem that I want to be encrypting, I want to be safe, but I also want law enforcement to be able to look in when it's appropriate. Is there a technological solution to that? Hmm. So I don't think there is a tried and tested solution right now. And I think this is the view that cybersecurity gurus ha have as well. So the consensus view today is that if certain people in some agencies have access to secret keys, then sooner or later, other people outside of these agencies will get similar access because Developing a backdoor that's only accessible to the agents that you want, even if you trust these agents not to misuse their powers, not to make human errors, two things that you shouldn't be trusting to begin with, creating that backdoor only for them is going to be very difficult. But is this always going to be the case? Uh, can't we come up with a technology that only gives access to one trusted agent and then maybe utilizes something like a distributed system of checks and balances to make sure that the backdoor is never improperly used? Well, I wouldn't rule out that this is possible, even though we haven't really seen it. And I think we should pursue solutions like this for specific scenarios where having a backdoor makes sense. And one example is corporate email communications or maybe other official matters. Uh, maybe governments, maybe we want all government communications to be encrypted, but in some event of a future audit, we also want to be able to audit that. So when it comes to people's private lives, I wouldn't want to see that kind of thing. But there are certainly use cases, as I gave some examples, like the corporate email situation, where I think we should work on a technology to be able to meet that backdoor requirement, because in some cases uh, we do want. But then Let wouldn't that be true of an individual as well? I mean, if, I, if I'm if i sending emails, uh, I don't know, uh, shopping for a hitman, do I want to have that just disappear? Or is that actually evidence that the you know law enforcement should be able to use against me? Um, it's like I said, these are these are tricky questions. It's not it's not an easy answer either way. Yeah, but I would say my, my position though is we shouldn't say never provide backdoors. I think we have never seen a backdoor that really works, but I'm hesitant to say that we will never have such capability in the future that works well. And I do think we, we need to invest in finding that way. Possibly with something like the blockchain, it might be possible. Mm. 
come up with such a backdoor that's not abused. Okay, so when you say works well, you mean it's it's not being abused because there's clearly backdoors yes. that are <laughs> they work way too well. Yeah, for the wrong works reason. well means exactly the opposite. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If it's ever yeah. used, there is record of that. Everyone can see yeah, that it that was it should used be reporting. It should be reporting on its activity as well. So what you need is a backdoor, backdoor, and if that should be enforced. <laughs> But then, you know, then who's watching the watchers, right? We have that problem again, right? Because now all that's being collected. Well, we talked about Bitcoin before, but I do see some potential for um, blockchain technology. Blockchain. Part of that because blockchain is self-monitoring in a way. Everybody's monitoring and nobody's monitoring at the same time. And it seems to work well. I'm hoping we can find another use for that in this space. Um, let's close perhaps, Andrew, with maybe the biggest question to summarize everything that we talked about, and that is the question of what should take precedence. Perhaps let me give you an analogy and then we will conceptualize it. The trade-off is, do we want to give activists under repressive regimes that ability to communicate secretly outside the prying eyes of every government? Let's say we have this magical encryption technology running on that super secure device where truly nobody can get into it. Or is it still important that there will be a way in because we do need to prevent criminals from being able to avoid law enforcement? So what should take precedence, the privacy aspect or the safety and national security aspect? My opinion, the personal freedom and privacy trumps the idea of safety, that we have way too easily given up our rights in an attempt to, to seek safety. There's a Ben Franklin quote about that, right? That, that if you spend too much effort on pursuing safety, you, you don't have it. There is no safety once you've given up all of your ability to protect yourself. So I vote for some encryption and an attempt to keep pushing forward on our ability to communicate person to person um, in, a, in a secure fashion outside of the monitoring of governments. We know governments come and go. We know there are some bad actors out there that are in governments, just like there's some bad actors out there that are terrorist groups or criminal groups, but that doesn't mean we should just give up our own privacy in order for that to be quote unquote secure. And I think that brings us to a conclusion. And let me quote something too from John Perry Barlow, the late American poet. He said, relying on the government to protect your privacy is like asking a peeping Tom to install your window blinds. Exactly. And I think that summarizes that dilemma here. Yep. Let me ask you a different question here at the very end. Do you actually read those end user agreements? That is so, a phenomenally embarrassing personal, question to personal ask. Personal question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I found another one. Uh -huh. I will at times. I will at times. So, the question is, is this a service that I have a choice to opt into or not? See, well, Sometimes, that's the problem, right? Well, How it's your you... bank, right? You Now you want to open your online account at the bank. What if you don't like the end user license agreement? Are you just going to say, okay, I will not access my bank's uh, online accounts? 
So I think it depends on the scenario. But if there are some optional services that I really don't mind not being a part of, I will take a look. And if it seems too long, maybe I'll say, ah, I think I'm giving up too much. And I absolutely uh, believe, Andrew, that we should be spending more time reading those things or at least looking up what Reddit says about those licenses. Mm. Eden. It's been a pleasure as always. I think we covered a huge and difficult topic, both uh, civilly and uh, discoursely. I think we we absolutely covered a lot of ground here. And I feel I have a better understanding of this truly difficult trade-off that we are all making every step of our way in a growingly more and more digitized world. Excellent. I look forward to the next one.